Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to the Cinematic Crypt, a motion picture podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Corner, Rosalie Kicks, otherwise known as Betzina Belfry. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. Well, goblins, ghouls, and creeps, it truly is the most frightful time of year. There is a crispness in the air. The leaves are changing to their fantastic autumn hue. The spookies have started to pop up at our local haunts. Are you in the spirit? If not, I suggest listening to my spooky radio special that I released last week. Without a doubt, Dracula Elvis, and I will surely inspire you to boogie woogie. For those that have not met Dracula Elvis, you truly are missing out on the magic. Surely, though, he will fly into the cinematic crypt very soon. This evening, I find myself recording from a cabin crypt in the mountains, and am so thrilled that Halloween is upon us. Being in the woods, surrounded by ghastly sounds, send chills down my spine. Maybe a specter shall visit me in the pale moonlight. Sadly, I'm sure it's just the wind. What type of monster mash plans do you have, my creepies? If you find yourself in need of some assistance with your party planning, I recommend grabbing the fall 2022 print issue of Movie John. You will find some spooktacular ideas that are sure to make your soiree a graveyard smash. The Bride of Frankenstein kindly shares recipes of a few treats that are sure to please any goblin, ghoul, or spookies appetite. Within the pages of Movie John, you will find recipes for Wolfman's Hairball, Dracula's Bat Witches, and Phantom's Shrunken Head Punch, just to name a few. These snacks and beverages will pair perfectly with a monster movie marathon. Visit moviejohn.com slash shop and tell them that Xena sent ya. When I asked my baby for a date, she said she'd rather stay at home uh, uh, up late. Says my cold, cold kisses give a real cold chill. But the spooky, spooky movies always give her thrills. Uh, my people love the spooky, spooky movies. Uh, my people love the spooky, spooky movies. Good evening. Welcome once again to my study. 
Igor and I have spent a very unpleasant week. We, of course, had our excitement watching the election returns. <laughs> Didn't we, Igor? <laughs> yes, it's too bad. Boris Karloff didn't win, but uh, next time we will get a stronger individual to enter into the race. <laughs> Our motion picture tonight comes from the year 1941. It's rather parallels my own life, so I want you to watch it very closely. It's called The Mad Doctor. It stars Basil Rathbone. Ellen Drew and John Howard. In just a moment, you have the first part of the Mad Doctor, which is probably his head. <laughs> but right now, time for our favorite mouthwash, Igor. <laughs> Creeps, you just heard the voice of Dr. Cadaverino, a horror host who began skulking about via the TV sets in Milwaukee in 1964. By day, he was Jack Dublon, a normie TV announcer for the Milwaukee station WITI. But under the pale moonlight, he let his fangs out and became a loudmouth, stringy-haired fiend known as Dr. Cadaverino. Before we get to our main attraction, let's take a walk in the cemetery, shall we? Join me, creepies, on this trip to the graveyard so that we can pay respects to horror hosts from days gone by in a segment I've entitled Grave Time. Jack was born in Chicago on October 28, 1929. During his college years, he became interested in radio, which would later turn into a career. From there, he found himself in Midland, Texas, where he started working in television, and it was here that he found an interest in puppetry. He would soon develop a puppet show about an alley cat entitled Cartoon Alley. It was this show that got him a position on WITI-TV in Milwaukee. Initially, he joined the station as a puppeteer and character actor, often performing voices for their various commercial clients. However, it was in 1964 when he would make his debut on Nightmare Theater, which would run until October 1977. Nightmare Theater primarily showed monster pictures, including flicks such as The Slime People and The Creature from the Black Lagoon Trilogy. It's all new, The Creature Walks Among Us, more terrifying in human form. Striking at the heart of the city with inhuman fury. The creature walks among us. Horror unleashed by the daring of man and a dangerous experiment of science. I have burned away the outer scale. There's a structure of human skin underneath it. The creature walks among us. The grimmest cargo ever brought to civilization. Now a monster made even more frightful by human emotions. Plus Merle Oberon, Lex Barker in The Price of Fear. Two great thrill pictures on one program.
would give his age as 165 and was extremely fond of the word stupid, which he often used to refer to his audience as well as his headless sidekick, Igor. Initially, Dr. Cadaverino had a ghastly appearance, complete with boils, warts, and sometimes even a broken nose. Over time, the look would transform into a hip monster fiend with mop-like locks, beard, and fangs. He sported shades much like Roy Orbison and wore a bowler hat and a green blazer that was affixed with a plethora of old campaign buttons. As for the set itself, it was rather disheveled, much like the host. A brick wall served as the backdrop with wicker chairs and a coffin. Guests would be referred to as El Creepo or Dumbhead, and even with his demeanor, he still received over 100 fan mail letters a month. Hey, goblins and ghouls, I'm still waiting on mine. Hint, hint. He would share a selection of the letters on the air, like this one. Well, <laughs> you're enjoying our little bit of entertainment tonight on this Halloween Eve? No, Halloween night, pardon me. Uh, we have received so many wonderful pieces from you people out in the audience, and uh, so many fine compliments. Uh, this one is from Dave Soderman, our fiend, and he says, um, he wants a picture of me and Igor. Uh, so that he can study my handsome face all day. And um, he says, I would send you my picture, but for some strange reason, I don't show up on film or in mirrors either. Interesting. I agree that something should be done about that ghastly character, Larry Eber. There should be less words and more action. Keep up your bad work. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very clever. Uh, I would like to know why your show comes on so horribly late. I'm sure that all the blood-loving kids of Gory, Wisconsin would like to have your educational program on an hour earlier. I love your charming and gruesome face. It has a look of honesty and personality. Thank you very much. Signed, King Kong. P.S. You have stolen my girlfriend's heart away. Please return it promptly. <laughs> That's the, some of the chances you take when he wants to show, friend. <laughs> well... <coughs> We are expecting uh, the big Hollywood producer and director momentarily, but uh, in the meantime, let's take a rest. And Igor, oh no, that's right, Igor can't chew gum. He has difficulty ever since uh, his operation. <laughs> Nightmare Theater ran until October 1977. It was at this time that Dr. Cadaverino decided to hang up his cape and pull out his fangs out of concern for his mental health stating that he was starting to like the movies he showed. Mwah. I do hope you enjoyed our motion picture of tonight, The Island of Lost Souls with Bela Lugosi and Charles Lawton and Richard Allen. Three very horrible people, but not one of them or all three of them together could possibly match the horror with which this following individual brings you the news. <laughs> You know, I'm really a fan of yours. That's very kind of you indeed, Vincent. Thank you. You know, I saw one of your pictures last night. Did you really? Yes. What a coincidence. <laughs> I saw you the night before. <laughs> Tell me, was that your last picture? I hope not. <laughs>
two of us. No boogeyman is greater than the two of us. The people scream about the team of Carl and Price, although we're as nice as can be. My buddy and me, there's just the two of us, and we'll be always traveling on. two of us. There's lots of gore in pictures for the two of us. He used to shine as Frankenstein and I was the fly. They forced us to die every time to pay for the crime. They killed the two of us, but we'll be always traveling on. And now our feature presentation. Time to grab your cape and get uncomfortable. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. <laughs> Today's episode will mark the third entry in the series, Crafty, Cunning, Conniving Charlatans. Through the course of this series, I will examine a total of four films featuring a charlatan who is up to some fraudulent, phony, and deceiving tricks. This evening, I will uncover and examine the 1948 Bernard Vorhaus noir thriller, The Amazing Mr. X. Starring Lynn Barry, Kathy O'Donnell, and tonight's corpse of interest, Tehran Bay. Born Tehran Gilbert Selhatine Sol Holtalve, March 30th, 1922, in Vienna, Austria. He would later be dubbed the Turkish Delight by his film fans. One of these fans being Albert Einstein, who Tehran so happened to be introduced to as a young boy through his uncle, who was a mathematician. Albert and Tehran would remain friends throughout Albert's life. Known for his well-modulated voice, suave demeanor, handsome looks, Tehran would find much popularity in Tinseltown during the 1940s. He was often called upon to play mysterious or villainous characters. Not that there's anything wrong with this, though. Aren't those the roles that typically have the most fun, my little creepies? He initially found himself in Hollywood after the annexation of Austria to Nazi Germany. After his parents divorced, he and his mom emigrated to the U.S. in October 1938, initially finding themselves in New Hampshire, and by 1939, they made it out west to Los Angeles. He would study acting at Ben Bard's School of Dramatic Art and become active at the Pasadena Playhouse. It was said that Tehran enrolled in the acting class as a way to improve his English. While studying there, it was his teacher that encouraged him to pursue acting and even helped him come up with the stage name of Tehran Bey. The word Bey was a form of respect in Turkey and the teacher thought it fit Tehran perfectly. 
In December 1939, a talent scout from Warner Brothers happened to be at one of Tehran's performances and immediately offered him a contract. While at Warner Brothers, Tehran found himself in small bit parts. It was in 1941 when he would make the move to Universal, continuing to land bit roles. But it would also be where he would have his first, more prominent role in the flick Arabian Nights alongside Maria Montez, who also found herself deemed as an exotic by Hollywood financiers. Tinseltown gossip columnist Hedda Hopper would refer to Tehran as the Turkish Valentino. Now before we move along here, I would like to discuss the term exotic for one moment though. Exotic is defined as strikingly different, strange, or unusual, and honestly could be considered a bit derogatory when one thinks about it. In looking at the past history of Hollywood, and heck, even today, they have always found a way to take advantage of those that they consider different, even if it makes others uncomfortable. I prefer to think of Tehran and Maria as landing these roles due to their talent and their diversity that they brought to the silver screen. Now, one thing is for sure, Tehran did look fondly back on his time in Hollywood, later saying, it was quite wonderful in those years. One was young and good looking, and it seems that those were the very two things everyone was looking for. Now that you've heard my terrible rendition of Tehran, let's go to the actual specimen, shall we? Here is Tehran in a 1995 interview. Do you have any regrets? Would you do it the same way? Not everything, I'm surely not. I, I certainly would act more professional uh, than I did before. What I was, do you mean more professional? Tell me, well, what do you mean by uh, that? Maybe my career started on a very easy way, in a very easy way. Everything came easy to me. I was at Ben Bart's for six months, then I went into pictures, then I was signed to a contract, then these wonderful girls wrote in when I played heavies that I should die in every picture, that I should get the girl, uh -huh. and I became a leading man. Uh -huh. Maybe. Maybe it was too easy for me, and I, I didn't know what, what work was behind making a picture. And my dear friend Tyrone Power once told me, he said, Chohan, also, he said, you're a very good actor, but you're not a professional. Because I, I was late on the set. You, you were know. late? Oh, yes, yes, really? I often was late, and, and that cost the studios thousands and thousands of dollars. Why were you so late, Chohan? What made Chohan Bay late on the set? Nightlife. Nightlife? Nightlife. Drinking? Oh, no, going drinking? Out no, 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 no. Just no, going out? Just coming in, coming in at 3 o'clock in the morning and having to get up again at 5. Really? There wasn't enough, there wasn't enough sleep for a young, young fellow, you oh. know. And, and then it wasn't there. I mean, I was an hour late sometimes. An hour late is for the studio a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And professionals never do that. After this picture was released, it would lead to a string of adventure flicks with Montez. One critic described Tehran as a handsome snake in the grass upon discovering him. I suppose Lana Turner's ex, Stephen Crane, most likely would have agreed with this statement when he caught wind of an affair the actor was said to have had with Lana in 1944. Here's an interview clip with Tehran speaking about a couple of his flings with Hollywood starlets. 
tell me those ladies that Turhan Bey went out with, like Lana ah. Turner and all these great stars. Well, I dated many of these charming, wonderful, patient ladies. Uh -huh. And um, of course, at, the, at that time, as it is now, the columnists had to have their <laughs> space. And uh -huh. many of the ladies who wept on my shoulders uh -huh. and told me about their husbands, about their boyfriends, mm -hmm. the troubles they had with them, uh -huh. uh, were never romantically involved with me. But I was a good listener. And first of all, I really cared. You know, to me, a woman in Hollywood, a beautiful woman in Hollywood, had one of the most difficult lives that you could possibly imagine because she never knew she never knew what people wanted from her really you know no they, you, and, and the men when it wasn't quite unlikely with the men too you had many people who called you who said they were your friends but you were never sure if they really were and you only found out, and this was the most interesting part of my career, when my career started to go downward. Right. There I really found out who my friends were, uh -huh. that, that stuck with me, that were still my friends. Uh -huh. The other ones drifted off. They had, they had other things to do. They had to find people who were going up. In 1943, he was top billed in the universal picture, The Mad Ghoul. Tehran was said to have enjoyed working at Universal due to the speed and efficiency at which the filmmakers worked. While doing my research, goblins and ghouls, I found that he worked with a former corpse of the show, Boris Karloff, from episode 9. Ghost Connection! Together, they starred in the 1944 flick, The Climax, in which Tehran Bey played a romantic lead. Sadly, that picture was a flop at the box office. Doesn't mean, though, that I don't want to seek it out. Maybe it'll even show up on the crypt one day. <laughs> Tehran would rack up 43 acting credits during the span of his life. However, his Hollywood career primarily was from 1941 until 1953, at which time he would return back to Vienna and work as a photographer and stage director. Tehran's long absence from Hollywood was referenced in the first part of the 1969 Get Smart episode to Sire with Love. Maxwell Smart claims that after appearing in an unspecified movie involving mummies, Bay was cursed and his career never recovered. Let's hear the clip. Is this what you had in mind, Chief? Uh, yes, that's very good, Max. That's perfect. Uh, Max, if you don't mind, I can't talk right now. I'm very busy. Oh, okay, Chief. Where'd you get the mummy? It's mine. I bought it in an antique shop. Oh, really? You know, I saw a movie once with Turin Bay. And he bought this mummy, and this mummy put a curse on him. Do you believe in curses, Chief? No. Well, maybe you don't, but Turin Bay never worked again. <laughs> the movie they speak of is actually a much earlier film that Tehran was in prior to his absence. It was the 1942 Mummy's Tomb, which was actually said to be one of Tehran's favorite films. Listen as he describes it in this 1995 TV interview. Favorite film? You have one? Mummy's Tomb. Mummy's Tomb. Tomb. Yes, That's wonderful. right, you did Mummy's Tomb. Wonderful, wonderful picture. Who was in that? Lon Chaney. Uh huh. Uh, George Zuko, the wonderful English actor, uh -huh. and of course, Elise Knox, a dream girl of all dream girls, and the contract to, uh, to Universal at that time, married to Paul Hesse, uh -huh. a dear friend of mine. What makes that your favorite film? What makes that? Well, I love to play heavies with a cause, 
that are not heavy is because they are mean, uh -huh. but they are part of a movement, they are part of a way of life that makes them act contrary to what good people do. Uh -huh. And that was in this case the young priest who was ordained to return this mummy to Egypt where it belonged to. Uh -huh. And to me that was a wonderful part. I don't know how, I, ha I don't think I ever saw the picture completed, but I remember loving to play uh -huh. that part. He would later return to the United States in the early 1990s and made appearances on television shows such as Sequest 2032, Murder She Wrote, VR.5, and The Visitor. Tehran passed away at the age of 90 on September 30th, 2012, from Parkinson's disease. He would be cremated and his ashes buried next to his mother's. Speaking of graves, let's begin our examination of the film, shall we? I have exhumed this evening the 1948 noir thriller, The Amazing Mr. X. possibly be dangerous to me. To your plans. You want to get married and lead what is termed a normal life. Then, Christine, if you have the courage and the will to explore, I will help you. And, uh, must you feel that her beloved husband is close to her? I'm surprised she hasn't asked me to lay an extra place at the dinner table. <laughs> so startled about. You're used to raising the dead, aren't you? I've come for you, dear. The Amazing Mr. X was originally known as the spiritualist, and tells the tale of a widow, Christine Faber, who believes she hears her late husband Paul calling from beyond the grave. Upon meeting a supposed clairvoyant, Alexis, Christine attempts to reach out to her deceased spouse. Her sister, Janet, also falls under the charms of Alexis, and the two become enmeshed in the eeriness of paranormal and supernatural. Of course, not everything is as it seems. Strangest thing happened. I thought I heard a man's voice out over the ocean, calling my name. Next time he calls, ask him if he has a friend for me. I'm serious. How can you be serious? It was the wind. Are those foghorns? Perhaps. But it sounded like... Paul. It's been two years now, Christine. I know. But for a moment, out over the ocean, I felt very close to him again. He used to love the ocean, you know, especially at night. He'd go racing down to the beach for a swim, no matter how late it was. And usually I'd be fool enough to go with him. If any husband of mine ever chased me into the ocean in the middle of the night, I'd shoot him did a lot of crazy things, some of them bad, 
But I don't think I could ever love another man the way I love Paul. Chris, you've got to stop talking like this. You're getting morbid. After hearing what she believes is her late husband's voice, Christine saunters out to the beachfront of her luxurious seaside home. Creepies? This estate is a place of my dreams. The sound of the sea under the pale moonlight with a misty fog sends absolute chills down my spine. As she is investigating the noise, she encounters a mystery man who could not be more dapper in his tux, complete with smoking pipe and who, for some strange and peculiar reason, seems to know all about her. I don't blame you for being frightened. You made a decision tonight that angered him, and now you're fighting to sustain it. Well, you have all my hopes fighting with you, madame. I felt you were married. I saw your husband dead and you moving toward a new marriage. But I see I was wrong. <laughs> Sometimes I am. Good night. Goodbye. Wait. You weren't mistaken. My husband died two years ago. Mm, I felt I could not be wrong. I saw him, dead, and his car in flames. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't understand how you know all this. I suppose people do talk. Do you live around here? No, I wish I did live on the ocean. Here is my name of where I live. Alexis, psychic consultant. Oh. I see you place me in the same category with fortune tellers, snake charmers, and magicians. Oh well, many people do. It is here in which we are introduced to Alexis, played by Tehran Bay, a psychic consultant of sorts. Christine, played by Lynn Barry, is under his spell the moment they meet. Their chat gives off this bewitching feel due to the way the conversation is framed so perfectly within a twisted tree. We're a crow, whom apparently is acquaintances with Alexis, sits perched, listening to every word. Hearing his voice, you can understand how it'd be so difficult to look the other way, my goblins and ghouls. Don't you find Tehran Bey's voice soothing? But you must know who I am. How else would you know all these things? Perhaps because we are very much alike. You and I. Free spirits, both of us. Like my friend here. We like the night, the mist of the ocean. The wind whispers to us and the sand feels cool under our feet. We're not like... Oh, I have his name now. Like Martin. There's nothing wrong with Martin. Of course not. If only he would understand how little he understands. Well, Martin is very logical. Yes, that's why you should marry him. After this initial encounter, Christine heads back to her home to prepare for her date with Martin, played by Richard Carlson, who, frankly, my goblins and ghouls, could not be more bland than a piece of dry toast. Christine, though, ends up not being too concerned with preparing for the date and instead finds herself caught up in her ghostly experience. Well, you certainly had me scared. What kept you so long? Well, I was talking to this man. Well, he was here. Could I have imagined him? He was fantastic enough. Well, that's 
get going. Oh, I, I tore my dress, Martin. I'll have to go back to the house. All right. Uh, we'll go to your house first. Uh, skip the theater, directly to the Blue Angel. <laughs> What's the matter? Uh, nothing. It's, it's just that it's so late and I'm a little upset. Could we make it some other night? Of course. You sure you understand? When it concerns you, Christine, there's nothing I don't understand. Martin is extremely practical and a square. He does not buy into any of this hocus-pocus, even when a recording of Christine's late husband Paul's favorite song starts to play, a song that Christine does not own. Martin is not falling for what he believes is tomfoolery or some type of psychic racket. For Martin, he is only certain of one thing. Either Christine forgets Paul and marries him, or he is out the door. That's strange. What's the matter, Chris? I'm sorry, but that was Paul's favorite prelude. I've heard him play it a hundred times right here in this room. Turn it off, will you? No, I won't. Look, darling, Paul's been gone too long for you to act like this. I know. Chris, I'm not saying this for my sake, but your whole life's ahead of you. You can't waste it probing into the past. If I can't make you forget Paul, well, find someone else who can. You're right, Martin. I'm sorry I acted like a child. Would you get me a drink? Creepies. I don't do well with ultimatums, so I'm sure you will not be shocked to learn that I am not a fan of Martin. In fact, I truly do believe that if I were Christine, an unfortunate accident would have happened to Martin, something that would cause him to stay away from me permanently. Everyone around Christine has a logical explanation for the occurrences she starts to experience. From the unnerving music, the eerie vocal manifestations to the elusive apparitions. All is explained away as silly little nightmares. It is only Alexis that truly listens. Christine decides to visit the mystifying and bewildering Alexis. She goes to the address on the business card that he had given to her on the beachfront under the pale moonlight. Upon walking into his abode, she is greeted by a crow that is flying freely about the home. But in my work, I deal with many different kinds of minds. Generally speaking, I think you could say that three types of people come here to see me. The first, a fairly large group, come here to scoff. Sometimes a few of them remain to pray. The second have childlike, credulous minds. They long to believe. They're tired and sad and need comfort. All this helps them. It creates an atmosphere, you see? A mood like music. And in it they find a few brief moments of comfort which helps them to continue with their gray little lives. And so I do not think it is so childish after all, do you? And the third group? Ah. The third group is those of us who honestly explore the secrets of the outer world. I feel that you have come here today to join that group. Well, I... I did want to talk to you about something. I know. He was close to you last night. 
thought he's close to you now. But wait. Maybe I should repel him, not bring him closer. Why? His presence is so strong, it, it might be dangerous. How could Paul's presence possibly be dangerous to me? To your plans. You want to get married and lead what is termed a normal life. But if Paul is trying to reach me, then I want to help him. Have you thought what people will think? What Martin will think? I'm not afraid to think as I choose. Then, Christine, if you have the courage and the will to explore, I will help you. Now relax. Let your mind be free and receptive. Christine does come off as possessed by Paul's spirit. Some may even think she is a bit obsessive about the situation that she now has found herself in and just can't seem to get over this dead guy. Wouldn't you be a bit obsessive, my goblins and ghouls? What if an actual specter was trying to reach you? How spooktacular would that be? Christine truly wants to help Paul and figure out what is keeping him from having his final rest. Meanwhile, Christine's sister Janet, played by Kathy O'Donnell, grows concerned as Christine continues to disappear off to visit Alexis. She decides to go with Martin and hire a detective. Now I have to admit, my goblins and ghouls, this detective is kind of great. He's a former magician that clearly is on to what he refers to as the spook racket and the types of flim-flam that Alexis may be into. He has a true knack for sniffing out the charlatans. For 20 years I've been operating among these phony mediums as a private detective. And I've yet to find one concrete bit of evidence of communication with the dead. But my sister's absolutely convinced. He's told her things he couldn't know, unless he were psychic. He's probably gone to a lot of trouble to investigate her past. They're thorough and clever. What I can't understand is Christine falling for such dribble. You'd be amazed at the people who do. No, thanks. There's a millionaire right in this town wouldn't buy a bag of popcorn without consulting his medium. What's this one's name? Alexis. It's a new one on me. Then they change their names often enough. This... I used to be a magician. That's how I got into this racket. I know all their tricks. Janet decides to pay Alexis a visit for herself for the sole purpose of providing to her sister that Alexis is truly a fraud. When she shows up at his doorstep, Alexis spies her through a trick mirror and immediately smirks and dashes off to prepare for a grand show. He is not the only one that has come prepared. Janet has some tricks up her sleeve as well. She even has devised a way to obtain his fingerprints by having him touch her silver-plated cigarette case. Unfortunately, Alexis is on to her, and Janet inevitably falls under his guise. Are you excited? Nervous? No. Oh, but of course, this problem is troubling you. The, the question you wrote comes to me, but, but faintly almost as though it were false. Oh, but another question comes through, 
with all the power and strength of love and truth. You are concerned about someone you love, a woman, your sister. Is it your sister? Yes. Older than you, but still you have a maternal, protective feeling about her. In many ways, you are more mature than she. Golly, I'm glad somebody finally realized that. Of course, you didn't always feel that way. Once you were jealous of her. You envied her popularity in her pretty clothes, and you used to try them on when she went out. And this suited you because there is an air of, of maturity and sophistication about you. In many ways, especially intellectually, you are much older than the many young men who admire you. You know, I'd noticed that. Does this feel uncomfortable to you? I... I, I think I'll have a cigarette. Janet erases the fingerprints from her case. Now here, my fiendish film pals, is where the story gets a bit wild. For those that have not seen this flick, you may want to pause here, for I am about to expose part of the story that may upset you if you have not watched previously. Okay, grand. Let's continue. Upon Janet leaving, we learn that Alexis is not acting alone. It appears that their maid is assisting with providing Alexis information to assist him with the con. Soon after the initial visit to Alexis, Janet reveals to Christine that she dropped in for a visit. Chris, don't see Alexis tonight. Don't see him ever again. Janet, I thought we agreed not to discuss this. I'm not attacking Alexis, honest. I think he'd be very for certain people. But not for me. Well, you see, when some people meet a fascinating personality, they're swept right off their feet. Like me? Yes. But other people can be more objective, like me. It's true, Chris. In many ways, I'm more mature than you are. Janet, I have lived through most of your growing pains, and oftentimes you've been insufferable, but tonight... You see? You can't be objective. You're getting sore just because I'm trying to give you some good advice. Give me advice? Janet, please. It is good advice. Alexis agrees with me. Alexis agrees with you? You see, I've talked to him a few times about your problem. I... I went to his house. How did you find him? Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. You know, he has one of the most vibrant personalities. And you came to this conclusion while discussing my problem? Well, we talked a little about me, too. Janet... Good night. Inevitably, the two end up going to Alexis's home together to partake in a seance. To avoid any funny business and to lure them deeper into the charade, Alexis asks Janet to tie his wrists and instructs her and Christine to place him in a cabinet of curiosities of sorts and lock it up. Now, Janet, this is your first seance. There must be some skepticism in your mind. Oh, no. Perhaps only in your subconscious mind. But nevertheless, we shall proceed under test conditions. If you would be good enough to hold this key for me. 
and Christine. Will you tie my wrists together securely? Oh, there's no need to do that, Alexis. I have every faith in you. Oh, but I insist, for my own sake. Here, Chris, you take the key. I'll tie his wrist. All right, Janet. Start with the right one. Tie one knot in the center. Tightly. That's good. Now, tie my hands behind my back. Very tightly. Thank you. Now lock the cabinet. So do you know that I cannot possibly move from this chair? The sisters end up believing that they see their late father appear and continue to become completely caught up in Alexis and the yarn he is spinning. At one point, a hand even reaches out to them. It's rather eerie until it is realized that all of it is just flim-flam performed by Alexis, who is behind the wall or behind a curtain, like the Wizard of Oz, pulling levers and pushing buttons to give the duo a literal magic show. While this is happening, Martin and the detective show up, hoping to catch Alexis in the act. Martin pleads to Christine that she not return to see Alexis again, while the detective searches for clues in hopes to prove that Alexis is nothing more than a snake charmer charlatan. Fortunately for Alexis, nothing is found and the farce can continue. Everything seems to be going just as planned, that is, until Christine's dead husband, Paul, shows up from the grave. <laughs> what are you so startled about? You're used to raising the dead, aren't you? Although I guess with me it was a little easier because I'm only legally dead. You know, I've been watching you ever since my uh, widow started coming to you, Alexis. I find your methods quite amusing. Mm. Excellent. How do you get out of that rope thing? Manipulation. Speaking of the dead, I think it is time, crypt dwellers, for our spooky intermission of sorts. Let's pay a visit to the morgue, shall we? To chat cadavers with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Together, we shall slice open and examine character actor Kathy O'Donnell, an actor who specialized in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the morgue. Let's all go to the morgue. Let's all go to the morgue to cut ourselves a corpse. Good evening, Dr. Carruthers. I hope I'm not interrupting you. Oh no, come in, come in. I'm just waiting on an organ delivery, so I have some time to kill. Oh, what type of organs? Oh, j just a musical organ, you know. Oh, oh, I thought uh, you know. I No, oh no, I don't have any non-medical organs being delivered here by body snatchers. I don't do that sort of thing. I see, I see. It does feel rather grand to be out of the crypt, I must say, to stretch my gams and feel the moonlight on my flesh once more. 
Oh, yeah, I agree. I prefer to be out in the moonlight as well. No sunburns. You know, you gotta take care of your skin. Agreed. And the crispness is back in the air, and I feel, you know, it's almost time I start getting out my Halloweenies, and, you know, some I never put away, of course, but there are some. I, it just feels fun to get them out every year. So I do put some away. Well, I have a question. Do the dolls help decorate? Oh, of course they do. <laughs> they have their own little decorations that they put up as well. Oh, wow. What do they put up? Well, the streamers and... And then the one really does like to collect old bones. And <laughs> they make wreaths out of them. Oh, that sounds about right. I've seen photos. He looks like he collects bones. Oh, yes. You really have it in for that one. He looks so angry all the time. Sometime I'll have to bring him by for a visit. You should. Yeah, so I hate to slice and run, but I do have a pending date with Bela Lugosi this evening, so who do you have on the docket this evening, Doctor? Well, tonight we have the Irish in name only, Kathy O'Donnell. Oh, yes, yes. Let's slice her open. She does seem like an interesting specimen. Why, yes. Scalpel, please. We shall begin with discussing three characteristics that made this particular corpse a character. Number one, her captivating smile. Number two, her bewitching eyes. And number three, she's a noir charmer. Oh yes, Kathy O'Donnell. She was another poor soul that was taken too soon. Did you ever hear how she made her way to Hollywood? I don't think so. Tell me. Sure. She, actually, her birth name was Anne Steely, and she was born in Alabama. Her father, Grady Steely, actually owned a local movie theater. So I'm guessing that had something to do with her interest in film. I'm jealous. I wish my father owned a theater. I think I'd haunt it and never leave, just like the Phantom. Oh, I totally agree. I... Owning a theater would be an absolute dream, and I would definitely just want to live there. It would have all the comforts you need. Yes, as long as it has a robust concession stand with lots of snacks. Oh, of course, of course. Kathy, she did end up going to Oklahoma City University, and she studied acting. She saved enough money from her job as a stenographer, and then she took a trip to Hollywood. And it was said that her interest in acting essentially came after she witnessed Janet Gaynor in the performance in the 1937 picture, A Star is Born, which is truly a lovely picture. I have to say that I really like that version of A Star is Born. There's actually only one that I haven't seen yet, which I think is the, yes, the Barbra Streisand. Oh, okay. One, but I, I've seen the others. Yeah, I've seen all of them, but that's interesting that that's where she kind of got her interest from watching that. Yeah, and I also have to add that I'm highly intrigued that she had a career as a stenographer. I feel that is somewhat of a lost art, but I've always wished that I knew how to do shorthand. Yeah, that is very interesting. And actually, my dear Grammy, Jane, 
she uh, worked in that as a young person and she ended up using shorthand her whole life. And I was constantly confused by her notes because they looked like she was possessed by another being. It was pretty cool. You should learn shorthand. That's so interesting. Yeah, I feel it was definitely a popular thing, well, or a thing that journalists would know. And I was kind of sad when I went to school because that was something that was no longer offered when I went. Because, you know, with technology, a lot of reporters and such just use like digital recorders or computers, so they didn't offer shorthand. Yeah. After her, I, I should say her discovery story is a tale as old as time, Doctor. Because while she was in Hollywood, she was spotted at a drugstore by an agent of Samuel Goldwyn. And the rest is history. They sent her for acting and diction lessons and changed her name, of course. And they changed it to Kathy, which was one of the names of a character in a film that she really liked, Wuthering Heights. I've never seen it. They also changed her last name, and that was at the suggestion of Goldwyn's wife. She thought that she should change it to O'Donnell because audiences were said to love an Irish girl at the time. (laughs) You know, why doesn't this ever happen? How come when I go to pick up, like, Pepsi, no Hollywood agents ever approach me? Yeah, I've often wondered that too when I read stories like this it just it seems unrealistic to me but I don't know it's happened to so many people especially of like the golden age of Hollywood where they were just like out for a stroll the good old days and then a car pulls up and it's like hey you want to be in a movie the first film she was cast in was the 1946 picture, The Best Years of Our Lives, which won seven Academy Awards. And I still need to watch this movie. It's one of those that has been on my list for a while because it stars Myrna Loy, Dana Andrews, Frederick March. And it just seems like one of those movies that I, I hear the title so often that it's like, you must watch this mm-hmm. like on those lists. But interestingly enough, Frederick wasn't at the Oscars when he won the actor prize. So Kathy actually accepted the award on his behalf. And I just think that seems so wild. Your first movie and then you're accepting an award for someone. It just seems crazy. Yeah, no kidding. Like, hi. Yes, I will definitely pass this trophy on to this dude. Right. After I've only been in Hollywood for, like, a day. The picture that we exhumed on today's cinematic crypt was actually her third movie and The Amazing Mr. X. And I recently caught the second picture she made, Bury Me Dead, from 1947. Oh, yeah. I want to watch Bury Me Dead. But The Amazing Mr. X was pretty wild. And I I have to say, her one line in particular just... Lord me. She's very attractive, isn't she? Most men admire Chris. But Christine will always belong to Paul. I suppose that's true. I wish you wouldn't be so unhappy. Do you suppose they'll be joined together someday in celestial companionship through all eternity? 
like it says in the books. Yes, I'm sure they will. Alexis, do you think I'd make a good celestial companion? Darling, I think you'd be wonderful. And we'd love each other through all eternity? Oh, even longer. Alexis, why don't we start right here on the Earth plane? Where she says, do you think I would make a good celestial companion? I just love that she's thinking ahead. She knows that this rat race is just practice for when the fun really starts. So I thought, you know, it's good to look at the bigger picture outside our stressed out little human egos. And I think she's on to something. Yeah, I thought that line was great. And it's funny when she did say it, I did immediately think of you because (laughs) I do think you would be a wonderful companion in the afterlife. And I don't know. I hope in our ghosting phase that we still remain pals. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if you'll have a morgue in the afterworld. Oh, yes, yes. (laughs) Overall, though, what did you think of Kathy's role in The Amazing Mr. X? Um, overall, I enjoyed Kathy's role. I think at first, she kind of gave me a bit of a rascally Pat Hitchcock vibe, but it didn't last through the whole thing. But one thing I'm puzzled by, I don't know why she seemed to date guys that looked 40 years older than her, so. <laughs> yes. The the first guy especially, like, yeah. I don't know what that was about, but I... I personally enjoyed like her detective work and I liked that she was spying on her sister and she wasn't afraid to like seek out the truth. She kind of had this Nancy Drew vibe going on. So I enjoyed that. And I also liked that she seemed to tell her older sister what to do. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. She is a total Nancy Drew. And if she were my sister, I, I think I'd get over it real quick. Just let me cling to the fantasy here with my ghost lover. But, I mean, I know. I I guess she's just a concerned sister. Yeah, I feel like she definitely wasn't buying into the sister's spouse anyway. No. Yeah, I mean, at the same point to what you're saying, I'd be like, yeah, just leave me be. Yeah. (laughs) Of Kathy's 17 pictures, she was in seven noirs or quasi-type noir films. And they made her very well known in that genre, specifically. However, it was incredible. Like, when I took a gander at her filmography, I saw she was in some prestigious pictures. Uh, For example, They Live by Night with Farley Granger. I really like that movie. I've never seen this one, Detective Story, but that was directed by her husband, Robert Weiler's brother, William Weiler. And then also she was in Ben-Hur, which was a Weiler picture as well. Yeah, you know, I like both the movies she did opposite Farley Granger. They Live by Night and Side Street. I think they're both great, and I love the two of them together. And when looking, I see there's even a Western in there with Jimmy Stewart. And then she was in The Story of Mankind, that also stars plenty of more regulars that we have discussed before, and where she's blessed to play 
early Christian woman. She really did it all. Unfortunately, Kathy died on her 22nd wedding anniversary on April 11th, 1970, at the age of only 46 years young, from a cerebral hemorrhage following a long battle with cancer. And that is a real sad story. Yeah, it's it's sad that she was taken so young. I'm still just amazed by the 17 pictures she was in and some that are still talked about to this day. Uh-huh. They're well known. And I definitely, I missed that she was in another picture with Farley. I'm going to have to catch up with that one. Oh yeah, check it out. Yeah. Well, chap, I should leave you to your experiments. It sure has been a lovely evening, and don't fret. I'll stop by again soon. And until then, here's the periwinkle blue blankie. Why don't we tuck Kathy back into her crypt? Good idea. Have a restful sleepy, dear Kathy. Good night. This is the manager speaking. Give me your attention for 60 seconds. In a few days, we will bring you something new that's never been to town before. You will actually see at this theater, in person, not a movie, a man buried alive. You will be able to see him in the grave through a specially constructed viewing tube. Since I am unable to admit you free, All I can do is urge you to see this truly amazing and unbelievable sight. We will give a bottle of My Sin perfume to any girl who can look into the grave and not faint. We will have an ambulance on call. If you look into this grave, you will remember it the longest day you live. Thank you, management. And now, on with the show. Welcome back, my creepies. I hope you enjoyed the brief intermission to the morgue. We return for the conclusion of my examination of the amazing Mr. X, starring the corpse of interest to Ron Bay. All right, so I am sure you have questions. If Paul, who is played by Donald Curtis, faked his own death, who was it exactly that was buried? Well, that remains a mystery of sorts. Now that Paul is back, this is where the con becomes the conned. Paul immediately starts to blackmail Alexis so that he can obtain what he came back for, Christine's wealth. This leads Alexis to continue his masquerade, inevitably driving Christine to lunacy while making the moves on Janet. One of my favorite aspects about this entire sequence of events is the audio they are funneling through to Christine's bedroom by having Paul in the basement projecting strange messages to her, causing her to have sleepless nights. It is wild. Fortunately, Janet, who honestly is a bit of a Nancy Drew type, investigates when at one point the audio starts skipping, much like the sound that is made from a vinyl record. How long, Chris? How long must I wait? 
Well, goblins and ghouls, the next part after this is truly a scream. And well, I don't want to ruin it for you and believe that a viewing of this film is in your future. Mwah. But now you must forget me. No, never. I don't need a crystal to see that your future is bright, Janet. Don't you go clinging to the past. I lived by feeding people's desire to escape the present. But you can't escape for long. Alexis, I'm afraid for you. I'll be all right. I'll find some spirits that want to contact people. <laughs> Open the window, Janet, please. Fly away, my friend. I won't need you anymore. While conducting my research of this film, I learned that a former corpse from episode 20, Carol Landis, was initially cast to have the role of Christine, but would be replaced by Lynn Barry after Carol tragically committed suicide a few days before shooting began. This beautifully shot film fell into public domain because the original copyright holder failed to renew the rights. Therefore, it is readily available on the wild world of the internet, and many distributors have produced physical copies as well. The director, Bernard Vorhaus, sadly only managed to direct 35 films as his name was given to the House of Un-American Activities during the Red Scare, which inevitably caused his career to end in 1952, just a few years after The Amazing Mr. X was released. As I mentioned, this film is shot in such a way that many of the scenes seem otherworldly. Much of the shots on the beachfront give off a spectral quality that I absolutely love. The director of photography, John Alton, would go on to have 103 credits to his name, including films such as Elmer Gantry, Birdman of Alcatraz, as well as Bernard Varhouse's other picture, Bury Me Dead, that I mentioned with Dr. Carruthers during my morgue visit. Alton would win an Academy Award for his work on the film An American in Paris, the 1951 famed musical with Gene Kelly and Leslie Caron, directed by Vincent Minnelli. The supernatural noir that is The Amazing Mr. X about a phony spiritualist is such a bewitching watch that took the director three weeks to shoot. I loved learning that Bay really enjoyed his role, saying this about it. A fantastic role, with wonderful people to work with and a lovely death scene I completely loused up. I just wish all my roles had been as interesting as that one. I hope you enjoyed the episode, Crypt Dwellers. In my next episode, I will conclude the series featuring crafty, cunning, conniving charlatans. With the 1940 film, you'll find out and spotlight not one, not two, but a trio of swindlers played by Boris Karloff, Peter Lorre, and one of my favorite dead guys, Bela Lugosi. Hope you tune in. 
Until then, don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little grave digger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at cinematiccrypt or reach me via postal mail. Attention Movie John, and that's M-O-V-I-E-J-A-W-N-P-O Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA 19145. I will always write back and include a personalized epitaph. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the tunes you hear on this program. Also thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmucci, for the rad Cinematic Crypt logo. If you can't get enough of my soothing voice, you can find me on other programs that are part of the Movie John Podcast Network, such as Best Friends Forever. Simply visit Movie John, and that's M-O-V-I-E-J-A-W-N dot com under MJ Podcasts. And while there, make sure to subscribe to our quarterly print publication. Our fall 2022 issue features Monsters of Cinema, and you don't want to miss it. Visit moviejohn.com slash shop. All my bags are packed, I'm ready to go. I'm standing here outside your door. Hate to wake you up to say goodbye, but the dawn is breaking. It's early morn. Taxi's waiting. He's blowing his horn. Already I'm so lonesome I could cry. So kiss me and smile for me. Tell me that you wait for me. Hold me like. It is now time to close the coffin. And now here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of Janet Burke. Do you think I'd make a good celestial companion? Silly question, my dear creepies. But a reminder to those that visit my grave that we truly don't start living until the afterlife. Goodbye. Film Pals. Greetings, goblins and ghouls. This is Dan Elgin. Very nice. Very evil. This concludes our trip to the graveyard. Until next descent into the cinematic crypt, be sure to follow your illustrious spooky host, Betsina Belfry, or Belfry, whichever you may prefer, on Twitter at Cinematic Crypt, so that you'll never miss a corpse. Yes. Join us next time for another trip six feet under to pry open a coffin of Hollywood's past or be cursed. <laughs>